When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I remember when Death Roll first came in for their uh, soundtrack and just watching how menacing Suge was to the point where like you see Dre sitting on a, a seat or something and he's like almost carrying the Dre and his rifle self is almost as big as Suge. But the presence that, that Suge had, um, you know, just it, it was it was larger than life, if you would. I think if I will always be a void for the people. Hey everyone, I am Jake Payne, Editor-in-Chief of Ambrosia for Heads, and we have a very special guest with us today. Joining Reggie Williams, our founder and CEO, we have T.Dot Eric, um, a very accomplished hip-hop photographer. Not only has he, you know, documented hip-hop culture, but also skating. Um, some of your absolute favorite photographs that you've seen, that you've known, that have defined the culture of Tupac, of Biggie, of The Roots, of J. Rue the Damager, of Big L, on and on and on, T.Dot Eric has been the one who has put our heroes in focus. So we are happy to have you join us today. My honor, thank you, thank you. Such a warm introduction. I'm like, wow, I did all that? Me? This little kid from the suburbs of Jersey? <laughs> How's that possible? That's well, we're gonna find out. City or in LA, not in the suburbs of Jersey. <laughs> no, that's dope. So what, uh, what part of Jersey are you from? I, I grew up in Somerset, New Jersey. So I'm right next to New Brunswick where Rutgers University is. So it's right in the, the hub of it all. Um, I'm one hour uh, from New York City, an hour and 20 minutes from Philadelphia. So it's, it's, everything's right here, perfect. And you know where I'm at, it's a suburban area. Even though New Brunswick, you have a nightlife, you have the colleges and everything else. So you have the best of both worlds where I'm at. Mm, absolutely. I'm sure you've logged a lot of hours on the uh, Amtrak and, and New Jersey Transit, Northeast well, Corridor. I, since 1992 to now. Mm, many, absolutely. many. It's, it's just like second habit, you know, it's a... I don't mind it. I mean, I'm grateful for it because it's like I can get in the city, handle stuff, you know, network, do everything, you know, whether it's skate, hip hop or whatever, just any kind of business, like even doing event production work, you're able to get in the city, handle your stuff and just come back home. You know, you don't have to be up in the grid of it. Absolutely. I'm glad to hear you say that. I mean, for me, I've always worked in either New York or L.A., but I've never lived there. I'm yes. in Philly, so I'm sure there were plenty of times we've been on the same uh, train, <laughs> both like trying to catch a few Z's on a late night home. Exactly, exactly. Making sure you stay awake on that last train so you don't get to that last stop and you're like, yeah. damn, another 80 cap all the way back. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, I've been really excited to do this. Uh, you know, I've been um, working on this platform for about 10 years now. Jake has been mm -hmm. in the space for 20 years, uh, you know, and so I think we've seen just about every image imaginable, you know, when it comes to hip hop, but mm -hmm. oftentimes you don't know who is responsible for taking it. And so as I dove into your catalog, I started to see so many iconic moments. And it, just, it just blew my mind, like, you know, just to see. Uh, and one of the ones that I, I found was most fascinating was you were there at the infamous Source Awards where uh, the bad boy um, Death Row um, feud kind of became public 
and you right. literally got a shot of Snoop Dogg saying, you know, the East Coast ain't got no love for death row. I mean, you you got the shot. That was, that was crazy. So what did it feel like in the room when he said that? It was, I mean, you, there was something in the air. Like you could sense like something was off. Like there was, there was tension that was not verbally said. And just the, the like you can understand why Snoop was so pissed off because you know, they're doing a good job, whatever they're there, they're representing themselves, but also, you know, honoring New York. But at the same time, no one gave them any kind of like congratulations, sort of like just eh, go back to LA kind of shit. And it was rightfully so, I would have been pissed off too, you know, but capturing that anger. And then that started in bubbling, bubbling. And then you had the shook thing later. And I was just like, it's time to get to turning back to Jersey. I'm going back to the suburbs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't need to, I don't need to stick around. <laughs> and I wasn't on assignment there either. You know, I, I, I was supposed to have gotten a pass to be in there. No, I, no one got me the pass, but I knew because they didn't give me a pass where my windows of opportunity were in terms of getting to Madison Square Garden. And I got there at the right time and I just sat around for a while, you know, and then I remember when Death Row first came in for their uh, sound check and just watching how menacing Suge was to the point where like you see Dre sitting on a, a seat or something and he's like almost carrying the Dre and his rifle self is almost as big as Suge. But the presence that that Suge had, um, you know, just it, it was it was larger than life, if you would, you know. And then watching just the, how everyone moved underneath Suge um, was interesting to watch. And then at the end of the show, where he was like, you know, if you don't want your, you know, CEO or executive producer all up in your video, and like, and I'm like watching, I'm like looking back at Puffy, and I'm like, does he really? It, 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 because you've never seen a moment like this, but you're watching it unfold. So I'm like, snap, what, snap. Oh, what? Snap. Oh, that. all right, it's time to go now. Because you already know, what, what, what's Puffy? I remember Puffy came out and was very cordial after, but I was like, nah, it's time to go. You know, oh. it, was, yeah, it was a moment to be an experience, yes. It's crazy oh, yeah. you say oh, that about Shiv because, you know, I've been next to Kevin Durant. I've been mm. in the same room and next to Shaq. And still to this day, I say the Shiv Knight is the biggest person I've ever seen in my life because I don't know what it is. His presence is his presence is gigantic. Um, but you okay? So you said you knew it was time to go, which means yeah. that you thought that it was going to evolve beyond words. What was it that made well, you well, think? Well, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that because okay, thankfully okay. I've never been in the presence of that type of moment. Yeah, I just knew for me, I'm good. I got enough shots. I'm gone. I just don't yeah. need to. I don't need. What else do I need to see? Like I don't. And not that I thought of fight or anything. I'm just, I just know when it's time to leave. You gotcha. know what I mean? So I'm just like, it's gone. Because I wasn't on assignment. No one was paying me to be there. Yeah. I had to sneak in, essentially. Yeah. On your Instagram, you posted a photo of you, Dre, Suge, and I, I think it's Big Jake, who's no longer with us, all in a circle. And you're, you're a few feet to the side. And I have to, based on what you just said, I have to imagine that was before the show started. That was during soundcheck. Oh, where oh oh okay uh yes it was way it was when they literally the whole death row death row camp got to madison square garden and um they're just all milling around like really they just rolled in and their sound check probably started like an hour and some change after they got there but they were just sort of just like it was dre and shug and whomever in this area daz and corrupt in one area together and then i remember um uh when the seats were behind me uh snoop was back you know just hollering at girls or like they were just but no one you know like it was uh what was it um what was his name the guy who uh and, and friday's got knocked out by debo uh um whatever his real oh. name is dj Pooh. yeah like he was in the back there so it was just like you're looking around and you're just like i just thought it was interesting watching all this crazy shit happen you know it was fun 
but the mood i mean and it just because that's a butterfly effect night for hip-hop history the mood and soundtrack you could have never foreseen what ended up transpiring no not at all not at all not at all i mean yeah you, you, yeah, you couldn't because yeah because no one was a celebrity yet like they had, everyone had hits but to me like that night let's say ll cool j was there that would have been a celebrity or um fuck uh i don't know like or some famous actor like that would have been celebrity status everyone else was still sort of bubbling up and you were watching that you watched their careers evolve over two or three years so there was no shell shock of celebrityism you know so everyone was sort of just okay we're still growing but but nothing has happened yet yeah so you were there for that moment where it fractured but you yes. also captured a moment that you didn't realize it showed the togetherness that preceded that event and yeah, you tell a phenomenal story about this photo that you had of Tupac and you discovered someone in the background <laughs> that was unexpected. Can you, can you tell that story? Yes, yes. Um, it was uh, it was interesting. Uh, it was the night and we're talking about is in uh, 1993 when I was in uh, New York to photograph and write uh, an article on Onyx because they had, you know, the song Slam and it was big and I was getting it into Thrasher magazine. Um, so that night they were performing with um, uh, Public Enemy, uh, I believe it was Ice-T and someone else. They, they were probably the first opening act or something. So we got down during, at, a little after soundcheck, went on the stage. It was right before the show, it wasn't even soundcheck. We went downstairs um, on the stage, you know, shooting them different uh, looks or whatever. It wasn't all with the typical yo-yo. They were they just, you know, flow, 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 got the shot, got the shot, because it was all on film. And then I was like, and I knew we were good at that point. So you know, I told them, like, let them sort of said to them, you know, we're good. Like, just, you, I'll go back to the dressing room. I'll be up in a few minutes or whatever, because I was unpacking my stuff. It was, it was a good, beautiful energy. I was like, cool. I was happy. And then literally someone, you know, off the side is like, yo, come take our picture. I'm like, okay, cool. Just give me a second. And I just got my stuff together, went over to dudes. And I'm looking at them, looking at them. And I just, you know, lined them up and then I'm looking and then they got ready. And that's when Pop threw up the finger. And I was just like, I was like, thank you. And I went back to the dressing room. That's all it was, you know what I mean? So um, it was on slide film. And for years, like I, I, I knew after a while it was Tupac, but there was this giant middle finger. So in magazines back then, you, know, you can't run profanity like with sign language. Um, so it, was, it wasn't really something I was like, oh, I have a picture of Tupac, you know, there has to be a magazine interest. There was no interest for years. So I just kept putting it to the side, putting it to the side, not thinking about it. But it wasn't until around uh, 2012 when I I was organizing all my slides to figure out what I'm going to do with it because it was just, they were just organized. They were just in bins and boxes and bins and boxes. So I had to do my due diligence of organizing everything in sleeves and, uh, and finally scanning it. But in 2012, into 2012, yes, um, you know, I literally, as I was writing stuff down, like, and I remember looking at the Tupac slide and I looked at it and I'm like, and I looked at it again and I had to get a light box because I'm like, this just didn't make sense what I thought I was looking at. But first part was they all had a, I'm a bad boy shirt. I'm like, that's kind of weird. Why is Pac wearing I'm a bad boy shirt? Because it's not something I, th I thought about in 1993, but in 2012, that makes no sense. So when I really, really stare into it and I put on a light box, look in the loop, that's when I start like just giggling about it because it's like there's Biggie Smalls with this, you know, there's Tupac, there's Little C's, D-Rock, Stretch, um, one of the guys from Junior Mafia all wearing I'm a bad boy shirt and support him, you know, Biggie singles, like, where he's like, I'm a bad boy. I don't know if it's from Supercat thing, but that was his catchphrase. But I'm like, that, like, shows they were friends. And then uh, I think, like, two years ago, I ran into Little Caesar uh, in New York, uh, and, you know, I introduced myself, and I happened to have the picture of him, Biggie, and Pac together. 
And he starts talking about that night. He's like, yo, 16. He's like, I had no business in there. He's like, I didn't even know this picture existed until a few years ago. That's why he was happy about the internet. You know, it just tells, tells the story about this is the only moment that shows all of us were friends together. And, I, and you can go to my Instagram TV where he talks about it. It's not the best quality, but the point is, it tells a story, you know, and he's happy to tell everyone, yeah, we were friends. Like, bullshit happened later, but at the start, we were supporting each other, you know what I mean? And that's what it was about for me. That's amazing. Now, have there been other times where you found, you know, retroactive, did you capture the significant moment that you didn't realize until later? I thought, uh, without sick, I still have a lot, let's put it this way. Uh, I have a lot of negatives and slides still to go back through. When I first started the scanning process or what I have, I've been showing and stuff I have in the background, that started in 2012 when every you know few months I'd scan a batch, scan a batch. Scan. And it was just the stuff I'm like, oh, this is cool. This, oh, this is cool. This just very fast like, getting through it to try and develop just a catalog to share. But I've also gone back and like taken second and third looks. And I'm like, oh, I forgot about this. So, you know, there'll be moments of, you know, people together, nothing, I haven't, well, I don't know what else I've, is yet to discover um but there's a lot that i do have and, and uh you know i even had and i talked about this last week with someone um like one moment that i know that i have for example is a moment of beyonce in 1997 when she was at the men in black um uh, uh album signing uh at one of like v- v- uh, virgin records or something in times square where will smith was the main person there signing cds or whatever but Destiny's Child, they were all, you know, not in the back, but off to the side because they were on the soundtrack and they had the same publicist. And she asked me, hey, can you take a picture of, you know, the girls are on the soundtrack? I'm like, of course, because I had worked with the label so much in terms of not them hiring me, but them at least giving me opportunity to say, hey, this is opportunity. Here's opportunity. You make it happen. I made money off of making things happen by following opportunity. So at the record signing, I went over to, you know, line the girls up. So I have some simple group shots, you know, of Destiny's Children's together. Uh, but then, you know, when the publicist is like, oh, this is, and I didn't even remember her name at the time. This is so-and-so, she's, you know, lead singer. And then I said, okay, cool. So, you know, I put like, there was a, a grand piano or something that was behind her. So I just quick line up and it's like, I got a couple beautiful shots of like, like early Beyonce, like almost virgin-esque, you know? And like, so stuff like that, that I'm just like, because I did my initial scanning of just because I wanted to sort of catalog with what I had of 90s hip hop and then some of the skate stuff later, I wasn't thinking about a Beyonce. I wasn't thinking about, this moment or that moment or, or certain other people that I, that I have, but I still have to take the time to get all the stuff scanned. And I'm a one man, not a one man army in terms of my work and having to scan it, but I have a team of people that have helped me obviously develop the books uh, and, and everything else that I'm working on. But yeah, there's, there's I don't know what else is, is hidden in there, but it just takes time and money and energy to, to get it scanned and cataloged and go through it and you know, properly index it like I've been doing so far. So that's just more and more stuff for me to share. Not that it's the, uh, about me but it's about hey there's content of your favorite so-and-so like i have some other big l stuff i have um just like i, I know i have there's a for example i have a folder of images um that i have called the smaller east coast rappers you know so it's everything from like das effects black uh, uh black sheep um lord finesse um just people who necessarily didn't go gold or with their hood hits you know like um blase blah uh smooth the hustler have some great stuff up so there's all these different categories of of 90s entertainers that I have but it's just like at what moment do you let out you know each one because you have because of the way that I'm releasing it on Instagram it takes time because I want to not only just release the quality images of the the artists and you know as they're developing but I also want to have the right essay so I can write against it so you can really learn a story about the time with them that I spent 
um, or whatever that it is, but it takes time. And I, I don't mind taking the time um, because that's how quality is shared. That's how like the books are shared, you know, with families or I'm able to tell stories now or whether it's skate or hip hop or whatever, just my experience as a suburban kid exploring life, if you would. That's how I look at it. You mentioned the books on Instagram and I love, you know, you mentioned essays. I really value the words that you place next to your photos, um, whether mm. it's an anecdote or an account from you or I mean even last night like the last thought in my head before I fell asleep was that Harold Hunter quote about money you know <laughs> um, which is phenomenal and it 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 enhances the photograph in the same way that photography and art enhances the music or right. the word just speak to me a little bit about your philosophy of those two worlds coexisting what two, which two worlds how do you mean the the word the written word and the image you know the photo um, I, I feel like, um, I, I, I never really, well, it's important to allow the moment that's captured to speak for itself independently. Um, so it's taken me time to develop my writing skills, uh, and also, um, linguistically, uh, removing myself to, to allow the story to tell itself. So it takes time, you know, working with copywriters and, or editors, just people who help you to, to express what the moment is purely, you know? So it's, it's a wonderful thing to not only show a moment, but it's also in writing, express like, like minor details, whether it's smell in the air, whether it's, you know, a, a minor thing that you, you've learned about the person that, you know, they only wear this outfit because they only have these many outfits or just like little things or just, whether it's skate stuff, it might be, you know, something silly that, that we might've done like skating or just the more you can express in words or in written form, those things can be carried along with the picture, you know? Um, and it, it's interesting that, you know, uh, you know, coming up uh, um, in my family, you know, we all had family photo albums that we passed from generation to generation. And one common commonality that I realized in all the photo albums, there's no captions, but you know, everything that happened, why is that? <laughs> You know, so I, I was the person in my family who's always taking pictures at family events. So I guess in some ways I was trained to capture a memory and tell a story in just one moment. But you have to be calm about it and wait for it to really reveal itself because you only have 36 frames on a roll of film, you know, and as, a, as you know, coming up, I didn't have a lot of money. I mean, not that I was, I didn't have a lot of money. I had to be very thrifty because everything came out of my pocket and I had to earn everything. So one roll of film, 36 frames, I had to make that last, you know, whether it's, you know, fact capturing stuff with my family or, you know, going to an event or even photographing weddings because weddings in themselves paid for more hip hop photography to happen. Like that's wow, the real, yeah. like hip hop didn't pay for hip hop. Wedding photography paid for hip hop <laughs> straight up. So if you're a photographer, learn and understand wedding photography, it'll pay dividends that's all what uh <laughs> what was the first hip-hop job that that paid you what was your first hip-hop check Fuck. uh oh oh that's easy answer i think wait um it had to have been something in thrasher uh oh i know what it was my first my first publishing in thrasher when doing photography and writing uh was ice cubes the lynch mob in 1992 um, that would have been my first hip hop check from Thrasher. Um, yeah, that, that's my first article. Yeah, that I wrote in uh, uh, in photographs, and I did it. I phot photographed the group. They were they performed here at the local university at Rutgers University. So I arranged it because they were there, you know, to get a photo pass and sit down to get time with them. 
Um, and I did, it was like 10, 10, 15 minutes from my house, but boom, got it done. You don't have to go to New York. Like if you have colleges around you, entertainment passes you all the time. Like if you're in any kind of metro area, like figure out what, what is the stream of entertainment? Like, like you don't always have to go to New York. You'll have better moments, more personal moments when you're not in a big city, you know, because I remember, here's a great example of it. Um, uh, in St. Louis, um, are you familiar with the group Run the Jewels? Yeah. Okay, okay. They're, they're a little group, right? So they're DJ, <laughs> track star. He's from St. Louis, and I know him from St. Louis because I used to manage tours that went through St. Louis. Um, I used to have a 10 piece, I just managed a 10 piece band and a rapper, and every month I, we'd take him on an eight city tour, and I would oversee that. So when we went to St. Louis every month, track star at the time was doing these mixed CDs, and he used to come and say, you know, do you mind if I interview whoever the artist was, was EPMD, Black Sheep, uh, you know, Buckshot, whoever it was each month, every time we came to St. Louis, he was already taken care of. Like, you know, I brought him in, him as, you know, this lady uh, always had dinner waiting for him, you know, drinks, whatever. He would do his, this video, do his mic interviews. And then he would create these mixtapes with people. Um, and he kept doing it every month. And then, you know, he ended up like doing a mixtape, not because of me, but with Killer Mike at the time, a while ago. But, but his grind of making these mixtapes, just because they came through his town, allowed him to get leverage of doing interviews with people. Now he has a show on Shade 45. And obviously, you know, he's now DJing for Run the Jewels, but he also does a lot of his own things. But he just was very humble in his hometown. And like, for me, I could have been a dickhead, you know, not promoter, romantic, like, kid, get out of here. But like, nah, I see the, hung- I know what that hunger's like. I'm gonna make sure you get taken care of every time. Don't even have to ask. Like mm-hmm. you and your friend, whoever you need to come in, you guys need drinks, food, whatever. It's along with the band, you guys are good. You know, but it's giving other, giving people that opportunity of encouragement. Like, I see the drive. I'm going to help you get at it. You know what I mean? And that's why we're still friends to this day. So you mentioned, um, you know, taking photos of a lot of underground rappers who had not reached that kind of mainstream success. Yes. And, and, you, and you talked about Big L. You know, so Big L, his loss was particularly painful because he seemed like he was just on the brink of superstardom. So did yeah. you know who he was at the time when you, when you, when you took photos of him? And, and uh, you know, did you see that star potential? Here's the, the interesting thing about Big Al, and I, I photographed him in, was it 1993 at Columbia Records because he had an album that came out sort of around the same time that Nas, like there was a bunch of acts that the Columbia Records released, so you had people like Nas, the Boss, uh, the Fugees, uh, Big L, um, uh, the Brat came out a little bit later, but I remember the album when, uh, when Big L's album came out on Columbia Records, it felt so rushed that it was just like a part of the machine, and I remember, I'm not even gonna lie, I remember having the cassette tape in my car and me and my boy were driving to a skate park in PA and we're driving, like driving, driving. I'm like, next song, like well, cassette, like this is whack, next song, next song. I got to the fifth song and I was like, this shit is whack and threw it out the window I was going to drive. I kid you not, like that's how whack it was. But then when he came independently, Rockers picked him up. He sounded like a completely different person. I'm like, yo, who the fuck is this? I'm like, that's not the same dude as Columbia Records like that I threw the tape out the window. You know, but and at that time, I didn't photograph him as he was doing like a bonnet or whatever, but I did photograph him on set of, um, it's a video set of something, but he was just in the background. I, I got a couple of really great shots of him that I'll, I'll probably release uh, soon. Um, but I still didn't, he still wasn't that breakout star yet, but but lyrically, like when, when Ebonics and everything that he was coming up with, and then he was gone. I was like, fuck, you know what I mean? So you just never know. Like some people, you can see the star glow. Some people, you just, I don't, I just, not that I don't do or don't, not that I'm a, uh, I know who's going to be a star, but it's just paying attention to people in the moment that it is and capturing it. Because again, when I thought his album was whack, before I heard the sound, I just was told, this is Big L, this is so-and-so, can you take a picture of him? I'm like, sure, no problem. So that's where you get the Big L black and white picture of him just doing that. I never heard his sound. I just had to look at him 
and see what I saw and just capture it. You know what I mean? And then him and his crew just capturing it. It wasn't about the music because if I would have heard the music first and then captured it, it might have been a different picture. You know what I mean? Just be yeah. honest. But it's yeah. better not to know, you know, sometimes the music or the or the or the or even for me, like doing interviews where I'll say get sent like, hey, check out, you know, these people did this podcast or they did this, or here's some background video. I don't know. I don't want to pre-nothing. Like, let's just go forward and let, let's absorb and be. Like, I'm not gonna say, oh, but you guys talk. Nah, let's just start start forward. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, but listening to you, it's really clear that that you have a passion and a deep knowledge for the music too. So, did that come before? Like, is is the music what got you into this, or or did you just happen to start photographing hip hop stars, and that's what drew you into the music? Uh, just the excitement of being around, um, the excitement of being around the music industry to a degree is what got me into it. Um, I wasn't the biggest hip hop or music head, if you would. Um, I just, I obviously liked the culture of it because to me, it reminded me of, you know, you know, your friends that are trying to either rap or be in a punk rock band. It's just the excitement of it, but also not having an outlet and saying, okay, if I can get this picture of this band and write, do a write-up, I can get in a publication and I can, it'll allow me to network up and in. Um, in terms of the music, I didn't have a, a great musical background. My, it's, my parents didn't play music around the house. Like we listened to the radio if we were in the car, but they weren't big music heads. Um, and I remember a sad or interesting example of this, not having great musical knowledge. In 1993, when I photographed uh, Guru and you know Roy Ayers and everyone doing jazzmatazz in Atlantic City, only person I knew there was Guru just because he was in Gangstar. I didn't know the jazz history of Donald Byrd. I didn't know the, the history of Roy Ayers. I just looked at that. I remember for perfect example is um, look. I remember looking at Donald Byrd and like really looking at his face and noticing his nose, and he had a similar shaped face here and here to my great grandmother my father's mother. So that's what I, I keyed in on in terms of trying to lay and, and capture something because that's what he reminded me of. Roy Ayers, uh, again, I didn't know everyone loves the sunshine. I didn't, I didn't know that until like literally 1995, two years later. And I was like, oh, that's new. But it was something about his style and his essence that I was able to capture what I captured. Um, and that's what it was. But I didn't know who all these amazing people were in front of me, you know. I love that account you have of, of walking Nas through Times Square and getting him in front of the watches because, and I, I hope I'm paraphrasing this properly, it matched his aura. And just like you're saying, you were kind of fresh to the party when it came to Nas with that. Right. I didn't know who he was, you know, but I, yeah. So with the, what we did was, uh, it was a, uh, we left Columbia records, which was on 55th and Madison. And I knew the Rolex store was a couple blocks down. And it was this giant like Rolex tower with a Rolex face. And, and there was something in my mind where I wanted to get an angle of, Nas and, the, and the, the Rolex thing and it just it wasn't there so as we got a couple shots I mean I was like eh and I remember we went around the corner I think it was on 53rd street we walked down and there was this open park and in the park there was this beautiful graffiti piece I didn't know what it was at the time I was like oh that looks fucking dope so we, we sort of just without talking went over by the graffiti piece and I set up a couple lights and I looked around and I just just captured him just being him I, and there was no direction of hey look here give like Nas is his own era, like own universe. Like you just want to observe Nas as, as I did. Um, and then, you know, it's got some stuff in color, some stuff in black and white, stuff with his hat on, his hat off, different angles, because like the way his structure was, it reminded me of, um, of almost photographing uh, like skateboarding if you had a really good wide angle lens because of the way that he was shaped and 
so I didn't have a perfect wide angle lens, but I knew by just positioning myself, I can get a wider angle on him on certain shots. And I just float around as if he was like a skater or something, you know, and that's why I got interesting angles of him. Um, and then when we were leaving the park, there was a placard there that said uh, the big graffiti piece that we we're looking at was a piece of the Berlin Wall that had actually been brought over to the United States to put on display. Mm-hmm. So that, that in itself was bizarre. You know, the Berlin Wall in New York City with Nas in front of it, you know. How, I mean, oh, go ahead, Reggie. Well, I was say, you know, talking about like how you captured Nas and choosing not to kind of pose him. You know, I think about your, your picture with Mostef and Talib Kweli, you know, most mm-hmm. being Yassine Bey now. And they're clearly posed, but their gaze is, is away from the camera. Like, how do you decide when you want them to lock into the camera versus look elsewhere? Well, that, that split moment that I have them there, um, they actually had just flown over from Norway um, the night before just to do Rocksteady reunion. And they were getting out of their car and they were coming around their car, getting ready to go on stage. And I had motioned to most depth, like to just acknowledge he was there that I want to take a picture. And he was like, cool, like it was all hand gestures. So when they came around right before they got on stage, they literally just stopped. Like just, it was like, boom. And I got, literally had uh, got one shot with me and former camera. I just looked at them and was like, boom. And that was it. Then they had to go on stage. Like literally they were just, they just came together. It was like, boom. Like it was, it, they brought themselves together. It wasn't like, I was like, most stuff. It's, it's very rare that I pose someone. Like if I see them in a moment, I might ask them to turn their chin or just the way it's so light will hit their face the right way. But, but, but normally like I, I can try and pull someone, but it takes a little while for them to relax. You know, once they relax and they they just be they're they're allowed to be them. Like you, you can give them cues, like move position, whatever, whatever, whatever to do. But beyond that, I'd rather just watch and learn you as a as the subject, if you would. True of of skating and hip hop, but you know our cities are changing. They look different. You know, the the Rolex iconography. You know, and that 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 couldn't happen that moment with Nas today. <laughs> Has that been a challenge for you with, you know, your work today of finding those raw elements that match your subjects? No, I, 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 I don't actively photograph anymore uh, as a profession. Uh, right now I'm doing a lot of licensing and I, but I still capture moments every day. Like it just, it just, you see moments that you want to capture. Um, I mean, even, uh, I think it was last Friday, I was, I was at the, the uh, store of lambs in New York city and there was a gentleman doing these carpets like with with yarn and this machinery and it was amazing to watch and um you know just to watch a, a, a gentleman like like doing this beautiful carpet like crochet style with bags of yarn and, and I was giggling because I also crochet and I make hats um so it's like like he got you get in the zone it's own I don't know if, if you, any of you guys fish or anything yeah in a while okay so you know how it is like you'll go to a store even though you have enough lures but there's a couple more just in a different colorway or just this this little bit so you collect yarn, like with yarn like fishing equipment you should collect it because you're going to use it so the way that he was just poised in the store like making this beautiful carpet with this machinery like capturing that moment of his him being so intense the supplies around him and even to the point where i photographed his shoes with clippings of like yarn over his like these specially painted Reeboks or whatever, but it, you can always capture a moment. You don't have to influence a moment. You just have to watch and observe and just, you just capture it, you know? So it's, it's I don't think there's any challenge. Uh, I think it's just adaptability, you know, because every day it's always something different and new. So you've talked a lot about watching, observing your subjects. How do you see people differently with your naked eye versus through your lens? Um... I think when I start with just my eye by itself, um, I'm more observing the person in their environment. 
And I think once I bring my camera up to select when that moment is right, I think I'm more zeroing in on framing more than anything else. Cause I've seen and observed like, okay, there's this section that I want to capture. You know, if I was shooting myself, my photograph myself, I'm like, okay, this is where I want to capture it to here to here. So I'm just paying attention to the space, but then I'm focusing in on like, okay, where's the light at? Okay, that's a better light on my face or like certain little thick minutiae. And then it's just like, you just capture it, you know? So it's, it's definitely just paying, paying attention to it observing it, observing it. So I'm not just wasting, you know, I can do like thousand shots, like, brrr, but, or, or I can just be patient. It's like, okay, cool. And just, you know, you know, it's right. Cause it feels right. It's not pressured or, or forced. Hmm. And even just in a regular iPhone. Yeah. And you took a lot of photos of Tupac. Uh, what do you recall about him when the cameras weren't pointed at him? Well, it's, it's, he's a he's a he is a very wise person very smart person um my observation uh is is a a, a few ways of observing him one because it was a press day um because the box music video channel this is in 1994 i'm recalling um you know you had the you know the real you know tv cameras and like the you know the paparazzi and everyone just rushing him rushing him like to do this do that and it's just like he knows how to play for the camera for the spotlight um, but then when, when the cameras are down and the spotlight's done, you know, when they're changing film, like it's him and his boys, it's just him and his boys and he's focused and he knows what he's doing. And then when the cameras are back up, he's making sure he's, he's by his boys doing this, doing that, making sure the camera, like he's tight enough in so his boy's going to get on camera. Like he knows, because he's an actor, he knows how to work the camera. And then, you know, again, like, you know, whether it's time to give the thug life, to give the middle finger, to give the you know, menacing black man look that you expect of me. And then it's like, once it's over, he's just like, <sighs> and that's when we laugh, you know what I mean? It's like, all right, that's when he's gonna go with his boys. That's when they have their moments, the press leaves them alone, everyone else. And those are the moments like where it's just like, you know, you take the mask off and you're just like, this is some bullshit again, but you know what? Two million is gonna hit my account in a minute. So it's like, you have to play it. You know, you have to you have to understand the characterization of, of a lot of our better um, icons and, and how they play the role. I mean, because again, Tupac was an actor, he studied acting and, and he knew how to develop characters, you know. Um, Old Dirty Bastard had a bunch of characters. Um, you know, um, I'm trying to think who else was a great character. Most definitely Yasin Bey, he's an amazing actor, you know, in his own right, outside of, you know, being a lyricist. You know, I remember the first time that I knew he was an actor was, um, this was in 1995. and. I didn't even know his real name. We, everyone just called him D at the time. So I first met him uh, when De La Soul was doing uh, Stakes is High uh, album. So every night I would leave the source, go up to Platinum Island Recording Studio where they were recording, not so much to hang out with De La, but my friend actually managed the studio. So I'd go up there, we'd read books, you know, puffy, puffy, you know, I'd say hi to De La, bullshit, bullshit, D's hanging out. So this was going on for a couple of weeks. And I remember when, one morning I was leaving Jersey for New York and the TV was on in the background and I heard Bill Cosby's voice. And then I heard D's voice and I'm like, wait, nah. And then I heard Bill Cosby's voice and I heard D's voice and I looked, I'm like, yo, that's D from the music studio. So I started laughing and the show was Cosby Mystery Show, which I didn't even know existed. <laughs> I remember I went to the city that morning early afternoon i was skating down from the train uh from port authority which is on 42nd and i'm skating all the way down broadway and i get to 25th and broadway and there's a park on my left hand side and literally most deaf is sitting on a park bench reading a book with his dry cleaning next to him and i stop on my board i was like yo d he's like yo what's going on i was like yo tell me why i just saw you on tv he's like what i was like 
I was like, you along with Bill Cosby? He's like, ah, starts laughing. He's like, oh, that's some old acting stuff I used to do. I was like, what? He's like, yeah. I was like, all right, whatever. And I, you know, I was like, I'll see you this evening. And I just skated off. But who knew? But again, I didn't know he was most deaf or he was, he was just D, one of De La's boys at the time, you know? So it's just, you know, he, he's a seasoned person. He's been a seasoned person. Yeah, I saw in one of your videos, you talked about Tupac with some kids and how his demeanor changed with that. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. When uh, this was in Harlem, and uh, again, the news cameras were taunting him to do this and do that so they could just get all the footage that they need. And at this point, he was just, there was too many kids around him. And he was just like, he just, just not that he was rude to the media, but he just focused on the kids that were in front of him and just signing autographs and asking questions and the parents were coming up. He was very one-on-one engaging in every moment. Like, yeah, he had a cigarette in his mouth. He wasn't smoking it and a 40 under his arm, but he was more interested in talking to you. Like, how is school going? How is this? Because that was a neighborhood where he was in elementary school. So he knows the environment, you know, but he was truly engaging, you know, with his community. It wasn't about, are you buying, it wasn't about celebrityism, about the music. He was happy to be one-on-one with his home community environment of where he lived in New York, you know, and now that, that to him was more special than anything. And it was just, it was beautiful to watch because it's like, you see in his eyes, the one-on-one connection with the kids or the, the people around him, you know, it wasn't like, Hey, let's make a paparazzi moment. No, like he didn't care about the cameras around him. And he showed you because the cameras are still around him shooting him. He's focused on them. And that was so more important to him. You, uh, you mentioned De La Soul and, and Q-Tip and one of my, you have a series, but you have a shot of posters at the turntable pulling samples or something in the studio. You shot a lot of your subjects in the studio. Um, I ask, I'm going to ask you a question that folks ask me on the journalism side, having been in the studio, did you ever hear something um, music wise that, that the public didn't get to hear that you wish we did or that blew you away? Yes. Um, I'm thinking of, and it's funny because it's a, a song by The Roots um, that I heard back in 1994, early 1994. Uh, was it? It was 1994. It would probably be like uh, April. Um, static, uh, silent treatment. No, it was uh, a sound. It never came out. It was because Amir and Quest Love had given me two demo tapes, um, and I uh, and there was a song on it. Uh, it was called The Ultimate Jewel, and when I heard it, like, it just blew, like, the whole Do You Want More, like, all the remixes, they kept giving you so much quality music of what they've been creating, so they developed so many beautiful sounds, but there's this one song, it was, I think it's the Ultimate Jewel, that I can't find it anywhere, and I, and I lost the cassette tape, and I still ask Quest when I see him, he's like, oh, it's going to come out on this, it'll come out. so I'm, like, patiently waiting, because sonically, it was so fucking amazing, you know, like, that whole Do You Want More album, sonically, was just some next level, like, they if they can make more albums that sound like that you know it, it reminds me of like classic rock like when you have a really great music system and you can hear all the layers of sound and like attention to detail like that's what the roots you know put out on that do you want more album and they have a a new release coming out i hope sometime soon or by september um but i heard bits of it and i was just like <sighs> it makes me happy it makes me happy a lot of and they're, they're old stuff and a lot of new stuff i'm hearing you know even from a lot of new jersey rappers like i'm just it just makes me happy again. Yeah, you, they, uh, they did a okay. bit of an okie doke um, a couple of weeks ago, yeah, where they released a cut from the upcoming deluxe version of uh, "Do You Want More?" And yes, Black Thought, uh, I'm every MC, and he mentioned yes. Cool G Rock, Ice Cube, and like all these 
and then it was up for like 12 hours then yes. they snatched it away it was, yep. it was crazy yeah yeah, you know, so yeah. You, you talk, it, it sounds like and, and let me know if it's true that you you do become friends with some of your subjects that you photograph um time to time absolutely and, and it's a it's a it's a friendship that's a respectful space meaning that um there's a trust that they allow you in their space uh you don't abuse that trust meaning like you're not blowing up their phone you're not you don't ask favors. You, you have to respect their celebrityism to be around them. Um, your friends are your friends at home. This is business. We're, we're business associates and we trust each other that you're going to, you know, capture the best of me. Or if you're just, whatever it is, you, they feel safe in your space, um, whether there's a camera up or not, you know, and it's just been years of the same thing over and over and over again. And it's a trust factor. You know, it's not that I'm Tierra Monroe photographer of XYZ. No, I'm Tierra Monroe, just a butterfly float around. You know what I mean? And I'm a trusted person that he's, I'm, I'm okay to be around, you know, because he's not going to sell your soul or not going to make you look bad or, you know, because there's moments where I'm just like, I'm not going to show this of this person this way, or I'm not going to, you know, because, you know, a party part might be hanging out or no, like you have to respect the artist as an artist, you know, and that means if you're, you know, if you're their stylist and you're dressing them, you know, you're not going to show them half-ass naked, like you're not going to disrespect the person. So it's a real respect factor, you know, just of your subject or the person or of yourself, you know, to want to allow them to have a brighter light, you know, not like, oh, here's the scan picture of such, somebody doing such and such. No, you don't want to taint their image. No, nah, just keep it bright. You know, if they want this on the side for them, then give it to them, you know, but you give it to them on the side and let them destroy it or do whatever they want with it. That's how I look at it. You, um, you mentioned that you don't, you don't shoot anymore, um, you know, hip hop. Was there a moment, you know, and it's like asking Rakim why he doesn't put albums out or asking Kane, you know, but was there a moment for you that you just decided, you know what, I've done everything I want to do. I'm going to take what I have and focus on curating it. Like, just tell me more about that, that decision with your career. Well, what it was for me, um, was it 1990, somewhere around 1996, I knew I was done uh, with hip hop photography, um, because my, in my gut, I wanted to get back into amateur skateboarding events is what it really came down to. Um, and it's like I was planning it out, like, because I, I ended up starting an amateur skateboard league that went from 1998 to 2005 um, across the uh, East Coast. And, and then we had two different uh, amateur series, one for older guys that was sponsored and then one for younger kids and families, like a family friendly environment. But that's where my gut was at in like 1996, where I'm just like, I'm bored with this. Like, I'm just, I'm, not that I've done everything, but my heart's not here anymore. And at the time I was working at the source and staff as a photo editor. And I just didn't want, I didn't like the politics anymore. I didn't like the bullshit. And it's like, when you chime in with like humanity, they're pushing back like, no, the streets want up. Do, 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 do. I'm like, oh, word, I'm, I'm good. I don't, I, you know what I mean? I came in here because it was an opportunity. Well, I a photo editor. I understood what needs to happen on a monthly you know, basis. And I also know enough photographers who haven't had a chance to be published that they should be published. And that's why I'm here. And I literally had an open door policy. Like if you're more than halfway decent, you're competent, here's an opportunity, here's an opportunity. And it's not always the cover, you know, it might be, you know, a small little quarter section, it might be a half page, it might be, it's the fact that you're, you're getting your foot in the door. You know what I mean? Cause that's what it takes. Just get your foot in the door and keep going. You know, and that's how I, I had it until, you know, it kind of went haywire and I was just like, what was was and i'm grateful that i left when i left because it allowed me to open the door you know for amateur skateboarding events and like it created a lot of community uh over so many years and and for me i also 
uh, in the first two or three years. Um, you can look at old skate flyers that I did, but I, was, I had record labels sponsoring the skateboarding events. I, like I had Bobby Digital banners at events. I had Jizza posters at events because I knew where the record label money was in terms of promotional dollars. So it's like I'd plaster a skate park with posters, stickers, giving promotional CDs away in addition to giving skateboard product away. You know, and then when um, Activision came out with the Wu-Tang game and Tony Hawk Pro Skater that same year, they brought it to me to help do grassroots promotion. So I'm like, yeah, skateboarding and hip hop video games. Yeah, I already have a platform to create, you know, video sampling booths or whatever. And then I took that and uh, allowed us to go to BMX, snowboarding, you know, whatever kind of events, set up the same booth. And at the same time, do cross promotions for the record labels by having their cassette tapes and stickers at the snowboard, you know, surfing, whatever events, you know? So it's just like that same like hip hop mentality. You just cross promote it different ways. You when talk you talk about Wu. Oh, go ahead. Uh, so you yes. talk about Wu and you've got an amazing photo of Ghostface and Raekwon. Uh, yes. You know, they've had a long standing relationship and, you know, I didn't realize until I watched the, the Hulu show, uh, Wu-Tang, uh, I think it was the American Saga, uh, that mm-hmm. they did not start off that way. They, they started off as you know pretty bitter rivals. So what did you recall about their chemistry in person? It was beautiful. There, I mean, I, I, I didn't, I, I, people have told me about the Wu-Tang Saga and again, I, don't, I chose not to watch it <clears throat> um, for no other reason than I just didn't want to see it. You know, my moments with any Wu-Tang member that I've been or had the honor of being around has been genuine moments. Um, but Raekwon and Ghostface, they're, they have beautiful energy together because their sound, they're, they've, they're, they're opposites for a reason, you know, but when you take those opposites and you find a way to blending them together, that's why they make such beautiful music. And I, when I understand about the documentary, they weren't the best of friends from what I understand, you know, and, and understanding that like having to be able to come together on opposites and work together, like there's so much beautiful synergy that you, you create, you know, it's like Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell or, you know, you name it, like that's the beauty and fucking amazing lyricism that they pull out of each other based on opposites, you know, and they, that's how they've grown their career. And when I'm around them, you know, you know, it's the typical thing where they're like, okay, get, get our picture done. Like, okay, you want this, you want this, you want this, you want this. Okay. We're done. Like, like you, you got the hip hop moment. Now you're gonna just go to the next thing. And it's like, yeah, you got that. But then when, when it wasn't about the, like, like just I don't even I didn't know Raekwon and Ghostface. I knew of them, but I didn't know them. So it's a matter of observation of like, you know, once they're done the, the typical chaos, like, what do you blend into? Like, what do you fall back to? And it's like when they fell back into that's like that's when I got the moment of them against the wall, like leaning like this. Like that's when I got you know Ghostface really looking in and like relaxing, and you're like wow, like you can see in and through him on such a beautiful way. Like you can hear his words through his, his face, you know, like, so I'm grateful that I got those moments that I got at them, like by being patient enough to just chill and just wait, you know, and just allow, allow them into me, allow, allow them allowing me into their space, if you would. You mentioned that position at the source during, you know, the true glory years of the publication. Was there a decision you made, whether it related to your photography or like you said, putting on others, empowering others that you're especially proud of, or you think was, you know, proved to be deeply impactful with time? Um, this, this it was interesting. The source for me, um, it was, it was interesting because the source allowed me in early years, like starting in like late 1993, um, to always just stop by their office. Not that I was on staff, but you know, I was friendly with enough people where 
and I didn't have an office in New York and I'm, again, an hour and change away from the city. So I was able to drop my bags there for half the day and go do this, go do that. And then come back and grab my bags, do this. They just let me have stuff. There. So I had mad respect for them in that sense. So when I got on staff and I started seeing the evolution, I get the source of all the few different, few different forms, um, but definitely the 96 into 97 era uh, of when they really took that gloss look up. I remember, I think the last issue I worked on uh, was probably the Suge Knight, uh, Suge Knight issue. And I think I have it here. Um, and even at that time, like uh, this was like the last issue I worked on. And I was just, and I remember being so done. And I remember we had switched offices, like we got a brand new building and they got all this new money. And I was just like, it just didn't feel the same. And I was glad that I'm like, it's, it's about skateboarding. It's about, but it's like, I'm grateful, you know, that the source, grew and evolved and gave a lot of people a lot of opportunities in terms of writing and photography and just developing their craft in so many ways. Um, but it's also interesting from an outside perspective when I left, watching the slow decline and who was involved, you know, and why they were involved and, and, and just, just how it just not destroyed the industry, but it just, shit just fell apart. You know, and it didn't have to fall apart, but it was based on egos, you know, but that's why I was glad I was away from it. And like looking back at it now, you could say you could see the decisions that were made that made things sort of fall apart, you know, and, and it's sad. It was over greed. And at the point they were everyone was making so much money. Like, how much more money do you really need to make? You know, but that, that's on them for them. Yeah. You know, you have one of the very few, you know, because it's so scoured the web, photos of Lauren Hill and D'Angelo together. And in my opinion, yes. it's, it's maybe the most iconic one. What do you remember about their chemistry together? I mean, it's <laughs> that that night in particular. Their their chemistry is just just beautiful soul babies. Like like if, if you can just take their genes and just make other babies, like like yeah, Lauren has great kid Marley kids, but come on, splice some you know together, <laughs> little hill kids together, just spread the love to the world. But they 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 were just beautiful energy because this is nineteen ninety six. Um, you know, D'Angelo has a nice buzz, and you know. Um, Lauren is at this point, she, uh, 1996, she was writing for uh, Aretha Franklin, uh, working with Clive Davis on Aretha Franklin's album. Um, yeah. yeah, she was also working with uh, Common Sense at the time, um, right before he put out uh, Retrospective of Life. So she was like in this new executive businesswoman role, in addition to working on, you know, Miseducation on Lauren Hill. So her essence and beauty, just like, it was beautiful that night, because you had Lauren Hill and D'Angelo together, then you had Maxwell and Lauren Hill together. And then you had pictures of Maxwell and D'Angelo together. I'm like, can the three of y'all just make an album where I can just cry all the time, just want to be in love? You know what I mean? Like, seriously. But it was, uh, uh, like, even Q-Tip was there that night. Um, it was just beautiful energy. Andrew Martinez. Um, uh, I'm trying to think else was there. Um, but it was just a lot of beautiful energy that night. And it was, it was so Lauren was getting an award for, uh, for something in Black Excellence from some kind of, african-american museum and her mother was there and her mother glows like she glows so it was just like all this beautiful energy like if you could just pollinate that over and over again like you'd have some beautiful fucking everything you know yeah. so i was happy to capture that night with them so you mentioned erica i had the pleasure of attending what, what i believe was her first ever showcase in new york um it was about three weeks before baduism dropped it was at the soul cafe uh wow. malik, malik yoga you remember that spot malik yoga yes yes it. And you have this photo, and I'm wondering if it was from that night uh, of Erica. She's looking regal, and it's it, it's 1997. Was that the night, or when, no, when, no? Did you take that photo? 
I took this photo in 1997, but <laughs> interestingly enough, uh, that was captured here in New Jersey at the PNC Bank Art Center. That's actually her in concert. Oh yeah, I was at that show too. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> but somehow I just lined it up, you know, from far away, you know, and I got these beautiful moments of her, you know, where she's just oh, Erica's just Erica. And and here's another time where certain people are around you, but you don't take their picture. So, um, 1996 is when the Roots would play Irving Plaza all the time. Erica Badu was always at Irving Plaza, you know, during these Roots jams shows. But I, and I remember. Um, uh, a friend of mine who was always with me, we would always, you know, point out that her hair and headdress was beautiful, her makeup, jewelry. She was always just this essence and glow, but I never stopped to take a picture. Like, we'd acknowledge her, but I never said, hey, can I take a picture of you? And I was like, fuck, you know, but I, that's one of those other moments where woulda, coulda, shoulda, but I'm grateful the moments that I did capture her because she's just, oh, oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> the you, queens, you, uh, I love them all. <laughs> I especially the last year and, and being a Philly guy myself, I really appreciate how you captured Malik B. And, uh, you know, especially I think in his passing, people were clamoring to understand more of who he was as a poet, but behind. And I just really just not a question, but I commend you, you know, in treating that group like a band, which it was at the time. And, and still, yeah. is, you know, I mean, Malik, <sighs> Malik is like, I don't even know who to compare him to because his lyrics are so unique, his style, his, his slang, his just, uh, I'm trying to think of compare, like I could say Q-tip, but, but Q-tip doesn't do it right. Um, I don't know, he's just so unique in his sound and just his dress and just, it's all there, you know? And it's just, when it comes out, you're just like, <laughs> yeah. you know, but it's just the beauty of essence. And, you know, I've had pictures of, um, uh, I believe it's early 1994 or late 1993, I'm not positive, at the supper club in New York where they used to play at giant step all the time. Um, and it's just early stuff with Tariq and, and Malik, you know, you have Leonard Hubbard, you had Scott Storch playing, you know, the, the roads. And it was like, that was the early roots. And so for me, I was watching them like in like a fan, you know, and capturing them like a fan, you know, because they were so unique. And I was happy to see a band with such quality sound that wasn't typical boom bap hip hop, you know. Reggie and I, you know, at the years at Ambrosia for Heads, we, we often, there were certain artists that you really can't seem to get without sunglasses. And right. when, you, when you get an artist with not wearing their sunglasses, it, it shows you everything you need. And mm -hmm. I think Biggie is so emblematic of that. And you have some really, you know, we've talked about Tupac, but you've got some shots of Big that, you know, are really incredible. And I just want to, you know, did you ever know at the time that you would be showing a window into this person's soul, you know? Not at all. Like, I, I, never, I never thought uh history forward in any of this um because there was no internet to remind us of of, of how time moves so fast um so our only reference of time really were magazines um so i hadn't been involved enough to understand a five-year gap or a 10-year gap that was just 1992 to 1998 it was just like by 1998 you know with what you know do we have an email yet yeah we had email addresses by 1998 you know i, I did anyway you know but it's like that short time, I didn't think about this, what's this going to be like in 20 years from now? Because I was like 21 to 25 to 27 or whatever, you know, during that time period. So I didn't know what 37 was going to be like, you know, and I didn't, I didn't think history forward, you know, it was just a matter of capturing it just because you, you have the opportunity to really capture it. And hopefully it goes in a magazine or it gets licensed somewhere. And that was the, pretty much the scope of it. Like you're hoping something would happen with it. And then 
two months later, the next person's hot, the next thing's going on, you just shelve it. You just that's the process, just shelving it. Shelve because no one asks you in, in the immediate, like, oh, do you have stuff from two years ago? No, you'll get played out. Like, oh, mm. nobody wants to see so and so. That was two years ago, shit. You know what I mean? It's just like, and that was part of the discouragement because it's like <clears throat> you're loading up on so much stuff, but then you're just like stacks and stacks of stuff that you you can you every so often you'll get you know a call like hey can this be licensed or whatever you work with a stock agency and again this is 1992 1998 and stock agencies did did okay for me um in terms of creating a revenue stream globally that i didn't have access to um but beyond that like you know like we don't think think that much forward and, and it's it's hard sometimes you know but i'm grateful uh being in the future now being able to look back with clarity uh and part of that is being able to write about the moments it helps you bring out more and more moments the more you can write the more description and then you you know leave it for a day or so and you're like oh you remember more and more about it and then like you really get into it so you're able to craft in words you know sort of what you do in, in you know whether it's fine painting or a great photo photograph we have depths of of layer of, of of substance that you can really really bite into and share so one of the images of yours that i found really striking and intimate was a big pun it's in black and white and, and he was sitting with his son. Like he kept yeah. him at home with his family. So what do you recall about Pun the man? Um, for me, Pun was very quiet because my, my, my relationship was with Fat Joe, um, who I'd known for a while. And, um, you know, I was around Pun, cordial around Pun, but the relationship was like more Joe and I. So for me, Pun, uh, he was more in the background. It's kind of like Cuban links or some of the other guys in Terror Squad even though Pun was coming out on his own, um, you know, he, again, he was just a quiet guy to me. Like, I didn't know anything about him. Like, I didn't know, I didn't know anything about him other than he was a great lyricist and that was it. And, was, you know, Boys of Joe and Joe was developing his career. So it was very distant, but at the same time, um, this time when I was at their house, um, um, what were they even doing? Um, I think they might've been doing a segment for the box with Angie Martinez. That's exactly what they were doing. So when we got to his house, we, we, it was in the South Bronx. Um, we got out the car, went around to the front of his house and Christopher, or, you know, Dragon Rios, um, he was literally like waiting for his father, like super antsy, like his father was home and, you know, his father to take a phone call. So he has father to get the house phone. And he's sitting down and like Christopher's like sitting there, just like waiting for his father to be done. Like with his big godfather hat with this, just like, you know, just waiting for him, you know, and they both had, I think the Yankees hats on. And then, you know, as soon as Pun, like there's a whole segment that I didn't air where it's like Pun's on the phone and then you can, you can see the heartbreak or something's really disturbing about the call. And it's like, you, he's like looking down and like, he did not break character, but he's just like, it wasn't, the call wasn't going well, but when I would never share that, I've shared it with his family, you know? And then once he gets off the call, he like looks over to Christopher, you know, and then he literally leans over and he like gets the hat and like gives him a kiss on the cheek, you know, like showing that love and affection, like, you know, so that moment of, them by themselves like really in that moment together you know and then the subsequent moment i might have shared it once like where he leans over and gives him a kiss that's just a beautiful moment of people you know let alone it happens to be hip-hop you know so it's like bringing the humanity um uh, the humanity side of hip-hop or just the human human humanistic side of who we are you know we're not you know mad all day or all not drinking all day or not you know, like there's a side when you go home and you take care of your family and like, you know, you're part of your family's life. And that should be, um, I like, I like being able to share that. You know, there's a picture that I have of uh, Pasta News and his daughter, Ayanna Monet from 1996, where they're outside of MTV studios and she has his lanyard and she's literally just spinning it around. But and it's a moment where, because, you know, her father travels so much that they're just there together. And it's just, 
that, you know, two minutes of them together before he has to go, what made the world to her, you know, just, she's just spinning her father's lane, just like, oh, you know, daddy, you know, and I've published it once with Paz's permission. Um, and I remember I termed something just like love or something, but because it was such a, a genuine moment, you know, so it's like, I, I, I like, uh, like sharing as much as I can to show more um, about us as people, you know, we're not just one dimensional that we only just do journalism, we only just write music like no this is, we came from something so let's celebrate what we came from whether it's our family or you know or or our neck our offsprings or whatever just celebrating your community and being happy about it it's not just about being mad all the time or throwing you know money in the air and wasting money and doing all this silly anyway so first of all that's amazing and on the complete opposite end of the spectrum of that black and white very quiet intimate photo is your deeply colorful big huge bombastic personality shot of missy elliott in her space yeah. what were your thoughts when you first saw that get up because that was like <laughs> unlike anything before or since it, it, it was beautiful um <clears throat> and i say that with such pride because i remember getting on the video set and i didn't know what i was walking into it was a typical thing where again the publicist like record labels don't want to pay you to do shit they're like hey uh such and such is going on <laughs> if you if you happen to be interested and i'm like all right whatever so you know I happened to go to the music video set, a typical hype wave set where it's super, super bright all the time. And I remember walking around and I didn't, I don't even think I saw Missy Elliott initially. I saw um, Keisha from the group Total um, because I actually went to high school with her. And it's, you know, I see her, I used to see her all the time. And it's like typical me, you know, bullshit and bullshit with, with Keisha from Total just sitting around. And then I think it was something where like I sort of looked over and then I see like this giant anime character, you know, I don't know if I'm saying it right, you know, Missy Elliott and her get up and then say little Kim and her get up. And I'm just like, what the, f-? and I started laughing about it. You know, and Keisha was laughing with me. And then I ended up, you know, walking around the set and like looking around and then you see the, bright, like, I'm like, what is going on here? Cause you know, at the time I didn't know the song, I didn't know the concept, but I just was watching something that you're just like, this is something that's, it right and make because miss is the only one that can, that can do it and and corral her girls to do it along with her and they and you know hype williams for, uh captured it the right way and it was just one of those moments where it was like larger than life moments that made sense like it wasn't someone uh you know like trying too hard like because you know missy just did you know uh, i can't stand the rain and all let it think about all the different costumes so she had to she just creativity wise brought it to the next level that made sense you know like the you know the speed racer anime that that you know uh whatever that is considered in terms of art form but she's just like she's so fucking creative you gotta love her absolutely you know i want to uh make sure there's there's two questions i want to ask you about your books and one being you know you're very active on instagram and you do it with tremendous curation but i feel like for as much as folks you know steal and reshare and these images live on through the internet Mm -hmm. there's a newfound need to hold tangible things right um and can you just speak of the, you know, what you've realized in, in publishing, you know, several volumes of your, of your books? Um, what I, I've learned, uh, wow, where do I even start? Um, I'm glad that, that we, because we, I work with a team of people, like a small team um, that actually helped to, you know, self-produce the books, but you learn everything about the business of publishing um, from, you know, what does it take to get a book, you know, together, like, fi- like f- finding self-produced uh, options that are available to you, um, understanding, like, working with a printer and, like, mistakes and all these things that, that if you go to a book publisher, you don't learn these things. They just, they give you a little percentage, hold out your rights for a long time, and you don't learn the actual business of it. 
So now I'm willing, you know, I always tell people like, yes, you can do it. I'll give, I gave them tips of do this, try this, like just take your slow, it takes a long time to develop a book because you have to make sure each image is scanned properly, touched up properly, that the writing is right, uh, that you're working with the right copy editors to make sure the book is sound, if you would, that it can stand the test of time. Uh, and then visually making sure it has the right balance. Um, so it, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, but I like having the tangible assets where people can literally not only have it on the dining room table, but they can, you know, it's PG or PG, like they can read it, you know, and have, people have told me where they've read it to their families or shared as gifts. And even making the gold book where we only made 100 of them, which is um, the rarity moments of 90s hip hop collector's edition gold book. And we only made 100 of them, but working with the printer uh, at GM Printing in Massive Queens, uh, who actually manufactured the book for us, he took his time, uh, KY is the gentleman's name at GM Printing. He's a master craftsman and he's been doing it for years. And we would sit in meetings and he'd take out all these different materials and like just really show you what you can actually create in terms of a book, like showing you different types of binding, you know, different uh, types of silk or different types of paper. Like it was such an amazing education. Like I'd have to go to craft school, you know, for the education that he gave us. So now I'm able to pass that education on to the next person if they want to develop a book. Not only like these, but just just bigger ways of, or more creative ways that, that are you were able to make a book that I didn't know walking into it. But thankfully, we were with the right person who wanted to teach us about you know publishing and making a, something new and different. Um, because to me, to have tangible things like books or photo prints um, or even you know you know licensing for albums or something. People want to hold on to something, you know, they want something to collect, to share in and share of like Instagram's great and I, and I love social media, but there's a time when I turn put my phone down, you know, that I want to actually be in the real world, you know, so it's, it's also sharing in a way in space um, that's outside of the, the, the phone, you know, so another example of that is, you know, this Saturday coming up, I'm a part of, you know, advanced footwear release called the NJ Brick Collection. Uh, and a part of the collection is a photograph that I shot of Redman in 1997, because Redman's from Newark, Brick City. Uh, so there, there's an image of, of Redman on a stack of pizzas um, that we're using for one of the images as a part of the collection. And then there's a second photograph um, of this world famous uh, place in New York City called the Brooklyn Banks. And, it, and it's made with bricks that are made from Sayreville, New Jersey. So Sayreville, New Jersey was known for making bricks that can be found in buildings, you know, as far north as Maine, far south as Richmond, Virginia, and I don't know how far west. But all the bricks, you know, for the Brooklyn Banks and all these famous skate spots were made from Sayreville, New Jersey. So that's where we're making the NJ Brick collection. But the second shirt, second shirt that's available as a part of the collection is a photograph of the Brooklyn Banks that was taken in 1988. And you see a skater, you know, skating the banks or whatever. And there's people sitting on the wall behind the banks. And then behind the wall, there's a guy holding a camera with a blue hat. Hold up, that's me in 1988. <laughs> I swear, and what's interesting even more so the day that that picture was taken of me standing at the Brooklyn Banks getting ready to take a picture of a skater, that afternoon I took a picture of the first woman to ever skate uh, in the Eastern Skateboarding Association competition at the Brooklyn Banks, and that picture got published in Thrasher magazine, and that was my first picture ever published in a, in a magazine when I was a junior in high school in 1988. Damn. On that same afternoon that I'm on that t-shirt. That's part hat. of the Brooks collection yeah. that's coming out this weekend. Damn. So you you mentioned finding the the Tupac photo, photo and you know, you know, there's other big L images. I want to ask you a similar question to close. Yes. Um, in compiling your books and in in doing all that you've been doing, what have you learned about yourself, or what have you learned about yourself during those years that surprised you? Um. 
Oh, and uh, actually, I learned a lot. Oh, well, I'll do these last few years where I'm really paying attention to it. But what I'm paying attention to was my level of detail from 1992 to 1998 um, that I didn't recognize at the time, meaning that how I focused in on uh, like people's eyes, their face, their skin tone, um, like really capturing people's essence that I didn't realize because for me, I was speeding so much through life because it's like, you gotta do this, you gotta do that. But I didn't stop to like really study my work. It was sort of like, you just did it as you went along. But now looking back at it and, and seeing the consistency of what's there in terms of the color, the, the thematic uh, ways of people expressing themselves over and over and over again, I didn't have a voice to say, I'm, I capture images this way in 1992. I didn't have that voice back then. I had no idea. I just knew I was consistent about doing something and meeting a deadline. That's all I knew back then. But looking back at it now, like I really learned that I was really, really focused in uh, on my craft, even though I didn't have the terms to, to define what I was doing at the time, where it's now, you know, so many, almost 30 years later, however many years later, like, or 20, whatever, looking back at it, like, and saying, wow, I was really confident in what I was doing at such a young age, at, you know, from 21 to 25 or 20, whatever the age group wage was, but I was focused and disciplined enough where looking back at it now, we can see Tupac in 1994, we can see, you know, the gloss in his skin, you can see the, you know, the hair on his face, like you could see the glow in essence, or, you know, whether it's Biggie on stage in Harlem or, or you know, or, um, or whomever, you know, a picture of Lauryn Hill in the hallway, like directing and just waiting for the moment to, the next moment to come into play. All these consistencies, you know, and it's just, I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm happy about it. You know, I'm really, because it wasn't like I was focused, like I'm the man because I shot this and I, no, it was never about that. But looking back, we're like, this is what we get. We all get to celebrate it now. You know, like Eric, scan some more shit. We want to cheer on. We want to, yeah. you know. And, and again, it's it's about the '90s. It's like, yeah, I was fortunate to capture it um, and and be a part of it and share it. And and more so, I'm I'm happy that uh, there's more, so much more, you know, to share. in, you know, as each day goes, you know, and you know, it's 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 our it's our collective history that we were a part of, you know, and and. Uh, I'm happy about it, you know, and especially like, I'm, I'm glad like you brought up Malik B because now like he's singing in the back of my head. So I'm stoked now. <laughs> Word. Well, T. Eric Monroe, thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, the book is Rare and Unseen Moments of 90s Hip Hop. There's multiple volumes. If you got that stimmy check, there's the gold edition out there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so thank you for joining us and, and on socials, of course, T.Eric. But uh, this conversation has been, you know, enlightening to me and you've definitely been responsible like i said at the top for the way that i remember the folks that have guided my life so thank you for this time i'm honored thank yeah. you all both seriously thank you reg yeah thank you i, I yeah, I'm, I'm this has been a, a pleasure and you know anytime you want to talk whatever i'm here phenomenal thank you very much and congrats on the book and and much success thank you so much i'll speak with you soon all right take care Peace. be well